Okay, folks, this morning we begin <laughs> a brief, brief study of Song of Solomon. A question, how many of you have ever done an in-depth study of the Song of Solomon? Okay, just a few, all right. Well, this is a, uh, a beautiful book, a wonderful book. Uh, it tells us a lot about marriage. Uh, presents to us a, a, a beautiful ideal of what marriage is. Uh, it expresses the feelings of romantic love. Uh, it awakens us to the ideas and attitudes that make up the biblical ethic of wedded romantic love. Uh, it convinces us that God approves of physical, sexual love uh, and points us to the wonderful relationship between Christ and His church. We might say, kind of coming off the heels of our study in Ecclesiastes, if Ecclesiastes is a thinking book, we certainly had to do a lot of thinking about our, uh, our worldview, our beliefs, and just wrestling with issues of our purpose while we're here, why things are the way that they are, um, the future, and how to respond to, to the effects of the curse of sin in our lives as, as Christians. If Ecclesiastes is a thinking book, we might say the Song of Solomon is is a feeling book, more of a feeling book. This book aims at the passion part of your soul, and that is where I hope that this study goes over the next few weeks. Uh, Your passion about your spouse, your passion for your marriage, if you are married, uh, and certainly your passion for Jesus. Uh, My prayer is that all of those are sort of raised to new new heights in our our time together, Uh, that you will love your spouse more, that you will... You will love the idea of marriage more, uh, that you will love the idea of human sexuality more, and again, that you will love, love Christ more, that you'll, you'll end up, when we're, when we're through, that you'll find yourself thinking, thank you, Lord, for marriage. <laughs> Mar- marriage was your idea, and, and it's awesome. It's awesome. Now, as we go through this book in the next uh, several weeks, we'll, we'll be hitting, as I said, uh, last week, sort of hitting the high points and in, in a way summarizing the message of this song. But as we go along, I encourage you to think, sort of think, I guess, creatively about what specific steps you could take in, in light of our study to sort of, if you will, elevate your, your affections uh, in those ways, your affections for your spouse, your affections for, uh, for Christ. In other words, not, not to go through this study and just, man, now I'm glad I understand that more, but really to think on that practical level. And what I'm going to attempt to do each week is um, sort of give you some, some, some sort of practical takeaway, some sort of application that you can, you can immediately inject into your, your life as a believer. So my hope, my hope is that in the end you'll know the book better, You'll know your spouse better because you're thinking about some of the applications and implications of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, You'll know how you can grow as as a Christian, and and you'll know what it means to love the Lord uh, perhaps in a fresh way. So wherever you are on that spectrum, some of you are are not married um, and desire to be. Some of you may not be married and may not necessarily have that desire. Uh, Some of you are newly married. Uh, we've got some some folks in here that uh, you know might have even been married in the last you know twelve months to two years. Some of you have been married for more than half of your life, so you've you've actually gotten to that point where you've 
been married uh, more than half the years that you are, you've been on this planet. Uh, and some of you have been married but have gone through painful separation. You find yourself single again, but no matter what season of life you're in, uh, there are always things to grow in, right? I mean, that's what basically t- Paul assured Second Timothy that the Word of God is profitable, right? So there, there's something here for you no matter what, uh, what sort of stage of life you're in at this point and where you're headed. So let me help you this morning to just understand some things about the book. We're not really going to get very far. Uh, we're going to get to chapter 1, verse 1. Um, and then we'll, I assure you we will be going at a faster pace than that, but it's really today just sort, sort of an introduction of sorts just to kind of get, help you to get your mind around uh, this. And I encourage you, uh, because we're not going to be necessarily going just one verse, one phrase, one word at a time, to, to and, and maybe you do this, I encourage this every time we jump into a new, a new series or study, but I encourage you to be reading this throughout the week. You know, read it through a couple times in between Sundays. Um, you'll, you'll get a lot out of that, and hopefully I'll give you sort of, like, again, some, some tracks to run on here. So let's talk about the title of the book. Well, if you've got your Bible open there, um, you'll probably see there in the English for your title, The Song of Solomon. It's actually in the Hebrew, it's just The Song of Songs. Usually in, uh, in, the, in the scriptures, when they, give, uh, when they give a book of the Bible a title, they typically take the first phrase of the first verse and use that to sort of formulate the, the title of the book. Uh, so if we're just looking at the, at the Hebrew, it would be the, the Song of Songs. And then that title was translated into the, the Latin, the Vulgate, as Canticum Canticorum, which is why you'll sometimes see this book referred to as the Canticles. You might have you might have seen that if you read you, you, any kind of commentary. A lot of times you'll you'll see that that terminology or that term used. Um, and Canticles are just simply a, it's just a term for hymns or or even chants. So we've got the the English the Song of Solomon, uh, or or you could say this this the Song Song of Songs by Solomon. Um, in other words, this is the song that Solomon produced himself. That's sort of the, the classical way in which this statement has been understood. Although the Hebrew allows for some other translations. For instance, you, it could be translated as uh, for Solomon. So this is the song of songs for him or to him. If, so if, if, if you looked at it from that angle, this would be basically, it would be like, Solomon, this, this is a song for you. So this is a song for you. This is a lesson that you need to learn, if that was the case. If this was something that was written not by Solomon, but was actually intended for him. Uh, the Hebrew also allows for uh, a, transla- a translation of, of this type. You say the song of songs in the style of Solomon. Um, but, uh, and again, that you, you, could, you could say that simply because we know Solomon was, was a speaker of wisdom, also a composer of songs. So not necessarily that Solomon was the writer of it, but that someone wrote this song and sort of did it in, in the fashion that Solomon wrote all of these other songs that, that, he, that he composed. Now we take it in the first way, at least I do, that this is a song by uh, Solomon. But I think what's important here is we just, that's not the title. The title of the book isn't the Song of Solomon. Okay, that's just sort of a... Um, 
that's an interpretive issue, if, if, if that makes sense. Or there, people, the people that put that at the top are assuming, they're making the assumption that, that the intent in the Hebrew is that this is a song that was by Solomon. Okay? And you'll see in some Bibles it just says Song of Songs. Okay? So this, is, this issue of Song of Songs, or what, is that, what does that mean? Well, it simply means this is, this is the best of the best. Right, so this is the this is the superlative use of of the word. So we have we do this in English, right? We say that someone is pretty, and then we say someone is prettier than that person, and then we say then there's someone that's the prettiest of them all. So we we use or we have ugly, you know, the ugly one, the uglier, and the ugliest. Okay, so you have pretty, which is the simple. Then you have prettier, which is the comparative between the two. So you're looking at two different things. And then you have the superlative use, which is the prettiest. So among all of those that we're considering, this is the prettiest of all of them. So, but in the Hebrew, when the, when, the, when the writers in the Old Testament wanted to express the superlative form, they would make the word a plural. So they would say, song, songs. That's what it would say in the Hebrew, Right? <laughs> Song, yeah, the ugly, (laughs) as Mike walks down the aisle, the ugly. (laughs) So in the Hebrew, they just say song songs. And the implication is that this is the song that is the best of all of the songs. So you see this in other places, and this will make sense. What is the holiest place? The holy of holies. So in the Hebrew, it's just holy holies, okay? What, who is the greatest king? The king of kings. Same concept. So where you just take the, you take the singular form, then you follow it with the plural form. That was sort of their way of expressing that, that, that superlative idea. So uh, what is the greatest? If you follow that, what, what is the, who is the, the, the greatest king or who is the, what is the holiest place? You see, what is the greatest of songs? It's not the songist, right? <laughs> there, it's not song, songer, and songist. But the song of songs. Okay, now we remember back in Hebrew, in First Kings chapter four, we looked at some of this with Solomon's life. Uh, chapter four thirty two says that Solomon also spoke three thousand proverbs, and his songs were a thousand and five. It's a lot of songs. That's a lot of songs. A lot of proverbs. So Solomon was prolific. Okay, uh, he was a master at this, and this was his number one. This was his number one. It, it, it's it's kind of like when you when you think of certain, you could think of, say, Charlie Daniels, right? You guys brought it up. I didn't, okay? <laughs> but it's like when you think about a music group or a, or a, or a, a composer or a songwriter, you, you, they could have written tons of songs, but there's that one. You know, that's like that when you hear their name, you're like, oh, you remember that song, right? Well, of, of the thousand and five songs that Solomon wrote, this is the one. That's basically what it's saying. That if you could have if you could have heard them all sung, if you could have read all the lyrics, you you would have concluded that this was the best of all of them. So that is the title of the book, and Solomon was its author. His name appears seven times in the book. Uh, we'll see some of that as we go through. Uh, the book also seems to reflect conditions in Israel before the division of the kingdom, which took place at the end of Solomon's reign. So again, this is just an argument for the fact that Solomon was the writer. That this wasn't something we went. We were talking about the Old Testament canon. We were talking about how 
you know, there's this idea that these events occurred and then hundreds of years later, someone wrote about them. But the, but the, the people that were writing scripture were not, the events weren't going on around them while they were writing. Okay. But one of the things that's, that, that's sort of, I guess, evidence that Solomon wrote this is that some people say this was written way later than Solomon, but, but all, a lot of the, the references throughout the Song of Solomon describe places in Israel at a time in Israel's history when there wasn't a divided kingdom. You didn't have the ten tribes of the north and the two tribes of the south and the divided kingdom, which took place after Solomon's life and, and his son. Got a poor portion, and then you get into to Chronicles and uh, King, Second Kings and Chronicles and get the history of all that. And you have the Assyrian captivity, Babylonian captivity. So, so that's just evidence uh, in my mind that, that uh, Solomon is... The author, in addition to the fact that his name is mentioned in those seven occurrences, uh, there's also no indication throughout the book that Israel, uh, or, or excuse me, uh, there's uh, another indicator that Solomon is the author is the reference to 21 varieties of plant life and 15 species of animals throughout the book, which harmonizes a lot with what we read about Solomon's life, with the massive amount of knowledge that Solomon had. First Kings 4:33 actually tells us that he was an expert in those things. Um, so he did, didn't know just how to run the nation. He was actually involved in all kinds of, of, of sciences and uh, different things, which makes him a perfect candidate to, to use all of that, uh, all of those references to, to plants and animals. And support for the notion that the book was written by a single individual emerges from the unity of style and themes exhibited by the relatively widespread occurrence of repetition of words and phrases throughout the book. So there, there, there's a, there is a view of, of this song that it's patchwork, that this is actually, some have said 15 songs or up to 40 songs, and that this is actually a, a compilation of a lot of different songs. The argument against that is that when you read through it, you see from beginning to end and all throughout these common phrases and, and uh, these common terms, which really I think just speaks to more of the, the fact that Solomon wrote it, that it is a, it's not a, a compilation of a bunch of different songs, but it's a, it is a single, single song. Now you can read all about Solomon's life, particularly in First Kings and Second Chronicles. Uh, again, we looked at some of this back when we were going through Ecclesiastes. Solomon's life really started out with a bang, uh, a roar, uh, but eventually there was a great crash. Uh, you almost wish that First Kings eleven was not even there in 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 the story. Because after this wonderful description of Solomon praying for wisdom uh, and the wisdom that, he, that God give to him, uh, gave to him, the wisdom that he had, after he had built this magnificent temple for the Lord, his glorious prayer at the dedication of the temple, all of the conquest and how, how the scriptures say that people came from all over, from, from afar, to hear Solomon, to hear his, to, to hear his wisdom and to seek his counsel. Uh, we read in 1 Kings 11 something that we wish didn't happen. So after you read, as you're reading through 1 Kings, you're getting all of this information about Solomon's life, and then you come to 1 Kings 11 and you, you find this, verse 1. You want to turn there, it's fine. Since we're already through verse 1 of chapter 1 of Song of Solomon, so we can leave there. 1 Kings 11 Verse 1 says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. 
that word for in there. In the King James, it's strange. Uh, we mentioned this last week, uh, the strange fire, right? It's just a, it's, it's, it's a for, it's alien. It's something that's, it's foreign. King Solomon loved many strange or foreign or alien women along with the, Pharaoh, the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He, the word there is debak. It's this, this concept of holding fast. It means to cling to. Uh, it means to be stuck on. Okay, so Solomon held fast to these women. He clung to them. He was stuck on them. And this may be a more familiar term, he cleaved to them. Because this is the same term that's used in Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined. That's the term. Be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So we read, if we go back to Deuteronomy 17, what we find out in Deuteronomy 17, the Lord gave instructions to Israel that when they entered the land, that when they chose a king for themselves, that there were some criteria that God expected them to follow. And he says this back in Deuteronomy 17, 14. He says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God, this is Moses, which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. So really, three warnings for the king not to be, A, power-hungry, okay, because this, 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 this issue of multiplying horses and chariots was an issue of influence and power. So saying you, you want to be careful, okay, you don't want this king to be power-hungry, you don't want him to be women-crazy, okay, going after multiple wives for himself, and you, you don't want him to be money-mad, Okay, those are the three warnings. Don't be power hungry. Don't be women crazy. Don't be money mad. Solomon doesn't heed that warning though, does he? 1 Kings 11, picking up where we left off, verse 3. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Now, many of these marriages were part of treaties that Solomon made with certain nations or territories when he would conquer them or when he had made some sort of diplomatic agreement with, with a country. Uh, the way in which they would sort of seal the deal, if you will, is that the foreign king would give to Solomon one of his daughters and, and a big chunk of money. Okay, So th- that doesn't mean that Solomon... Uh, had sexual relations with all of these women or that he thought of all of them in the same way or knew all of them on the same level. Nevertheless, just simply based on what we know of here in Deuteronomy 17, this was shameful. Uh, Shameful and and things rapidly went downhill. You'll notice there in verse 4, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away, just like God said would happen. 
turned his heart away from uh, away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. And then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you've done this, and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. There's an interesting summary of these events over in Nehemiah 13. Of course, this is years later after... You know, the, again, the, the, the kingdom was divided, a series of kings, the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, and then some of the Jews returned back from captivity uh, in Babylon and, and rebuilt the wall in Jerusalem. Of course, Nehemiah was involved in that. But it says in the end of Nehemiah, this is in Nehemiah thirteen twenty three. it says, In those days I also, this is Nehemiah speaking, and I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, uh, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair. We'll have to come back to that later. (laughs) And made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon... Okay, so here's Nehemiah telling them about how they are, they're, they're disobeying God, they're grieving God because of this intermarrying. And then he makes reference back to Solomon. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. It's an interesting way for him to look back and say, don't get, you know, you read Solomon's life, and this was part of our struggle in Ecclesiastes, right? When you read all the garbage that takes place in Solomon's life, you're like, is this guy even a believer? Is he even saved? Our take on Ecclesiastes was Ecclesiastes was written at the end of Solomon's life, and it was a way in which Solomon expressed repentance for those ungodly and and unwise decisions he had made in the middle, middle years to later years of of his life. But here, it's like he's saying, Solomon, just don't ever forget, Solomon was loved by God. Okay? I mean, God made a covenant with David. He made a covenant with Solomon. He blessed Solomon. Solomon asked for the right thing at a certain point in his life. God gave that to him. The Lord loved him, and God made him king. Okay? Now, again, this is interesting because in some places in Scripture, it's the people chose their king, right? They chose this and they chose that one here. It's, don't forget, God is the one who did this. God chose the king and yet, it's like this little, nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Now, it may be Solomon's prolific sexual experience 
that would appear to disqualify him from expressing the romantic love and devotion for one woman indicated in the Song of Songs. But perhaps the Shulamite woman, this is the woman in, this, in, the, in, in the book, perhaps the Shulamite woman in the Song of Songs was the one true love of Solomon's life, and some would argue maybe even the first, right? That this, this could be a reference to his first wife, that would make sense. Um, obviously, he didn't write it near that time in his life. If anything, he wrote this during those middle years, but it could be a reference, again, back to that, and perhaps she, this Shulamite woman, is the one that Solomon would refer to in Ecclesiastes 9.9, where he says there, and we looked at this, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which God has given you, given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Or as he would say in Proverbs, the wife of your youth, right? So, Solomon is the author, uh, I believe that, which means that this book was written sometime between 970 B.C. when Solomon was anointed king over Israel and his death in 931 B.C. But we don't know exactly when Solomon wrote the book, or when exactly in his life he he did that. Now, there have been a lot of interpretive angles taken on this book. Uh, It's not an easy book to interpret. There may be more different interpretations of the Song of Songs than any other book of the Bible. And that has caused, I believe, many Christians, maybe even some of us, to avoid it. Um, I have about 16 commentaries on this this book, and (laughs) I don't know if any of them agree. (laughs) That's been part of the challenge of just studying and getting ready for this, is that, you know, you'd like to see some overlap. (laughs) That would be helpful. But the the, uh, interpretations are all over over the place. I even mentioned, uh, I think, last last week that there's a a view that this actually has nothing to do with romantic love and and a wedding or any of that. It has nothing to do, it has to do with, it's a funeral. It's a dirge, a funeral dirge. So there's a quite a quite a spectrum of interpretations. Uh, but I think that that the fact that there are so many, again, I think that's caused a lot of believers to avoid it and to just conclude that hey, it has to mean something. But let's just move on. Let's move on to the Gospel of Luke, or let's go to the Book of Romans. It's <laughs> something a little bit more easy to to understand. Well, without a doubt. Over the centuries, this song has suffered abusive behavior at the hands of interpreters. Uh, Many consider the allegorical interpretation as the oldest method of interpreting the song. Uh, This particular approach attempts to find a spiritual meaning behind the descriptive passages about the love relationship between a man and a woman. Of course, this this has been the predominant position through church history. The allegorical view was popular particularly through the, through the Middle Ages, 5th, 5th century up through the, the 15th century. Uh, but since the Reformation in the last 500 years, things moved somewhat away from the allegorical view where the man in Song of Solomon is viewed as God and the woman as either Israel or the church. Okay, that would be the allegorical interpretation. Things have somewhat moved from that, that to a typological view that is to say that there might have been there might have been an actual man and woman that had a literal relationship but the reason that this this book is in the canon is because they are types of the man Jesus Christ and the woman the church or 
the bride of Christ. That yes, Solomon even, even if you take Solomon as the author, that Solomon may have had a real relationship with a real woman, but that relationship is just a type of the relationship between the Lord and the believer. So it's the intent, and what I'm getting at, because earlier I said this, this study should point us to Christ. It should. It should point us to Christ and Christ's love for the church. That's different than saying that this, these people in this song are types of Christ and the church. Does that make sense? And when we look at Scripture, I mean, Scripture points us to a lot of things, right? But that's different than saying that it's, it's inherent and embedded in the text that we know this is a type of something that's given to us later in, in the Word of God. So things have moved somewhat away from allegory over to this sort of typology. Uh, but just to get an idea of where that kind of interpretation leads, just consider just a handful of examples. Bernard of Clairvaux preached 86 sermons from chapters 1 and 2. Depict, dep- all of them basically depicting Christ's crucifixion. Okay. Uh, the phrase in chapter 1 of Song of Solomon, verse 13, the phrase that when it says there in that verse, between my breasts, that has been interpreted. It's all over the place. It has been interpreted by Rashi and Ibn Ezra as the tabernacling of God over the Ark of the Cherubim. By Cyril of Alexandria, it was interpreted as between the Old and the New Testaments. And so one breast being Old Testament, one breast being New Testament, and Christ the one that is the hinge that brings the Old and New Testament together. Uh, Bernard uh, interpreted this as the the crucifixion of Christ, which, which strengthens the believer in sorrow and joy. Okay? Uh, chapter 2, verse 12, the voice of the turtle dove has been viewed by some as the preaching of the apostles. Uh, the phrase in chapter 5, verse 1, that says, just the phrase, eat and drink, that has been taken by some to be a reference to the Lord's Supper. Okay? So the problems with this method are obvious. <laughs> that if you go into this with an allegorical mindset, you are, there is no limit where you can go with this, okay? You read it, it hits you one way, you're going to the New Testament, you're trying to read back into the Old Testament what you know of the New Testament, not realizing that, remember, when people received revelation from God in their setting, right, they were expected to understand what was written. They weren't expected to wait around for several hundred years for the key, to unlock the thing that they were reading. We, we went through this, right? We talked about the Old Testament canon. that with the, When the Word of God, when God revealed Himself through the prophets, the people to which the prophets were speaking were expected to understand what was being said because they were held accountable for it. <laughs> and if they didn't follow what was clearly revealed, then in some cases God would bring judgment on them, say, I told you to do this and you didn't do it. So when you go down that allegorical road, it is, I would just say this, just because it was the dominant way of interpreting this book for a thousand years does not automatically mean that is the right way to interpret this book. In fact, I actually think there's reasons why the church went that direction, okay, because there's a, a lot of Roman Catholicism, right, in the medieval times, and I think actually some of the allegory plays into Catholic doctrine. So I think there's even there's a reason why the Catholic Church would lean more heavily towards I think an allegorical view.
So I think there's a better way. I think there's a better way. I think there's a more satisfying way, and that is to simply interpret the song maybe the best normally. (laughs) Take it at face value, understanding the frequent use of ancient poetic imagery. So when we say you're supposed to, that we interpret the Song of Songs, literally, we're not, we don't mean by that that we don't acknowledge figures of speech, we don't acknowledge symbolism. It's just saying, no, we just, we're not looking for Jesus, okay, in every verse of, of of Song of Solomon. We're just not doing that. Okay, we need to read it normally, interpret it normally, and yet at the same time, we understand that poetic imagery that the writer uses. And, and it makes sense that the writer would use that kind of language if we're talking about something such as sexual love, right, in a marriage. So this is love poetry, right? It is a love song that celebrates the marital joy experienced by the man and the woman. It is a song that expands on the ancient marriage instructions of Genesis 2.24, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It is a song that provides spiritual music, if you will, for a lifetime of marital harmony. It is a song that has been given by God to us to demonstrate His intention for the romance and loveliness of marriage, the most precious of human relations, and as 1 Peter 3, 7 says, it's the grace of life. So who are the lead characters in this romance? Well, of course, we have Solomon, whose kingship is mentioned five times uh, in, in the song and who appears uh, in the song as the beloved. kind of depends on the translation, but in most cases you'd see him sort of the, uh, ref, ref, referenced as that, the beloved. Then we have the Shulamite or the Shunammite maiden. Uh, that, that reference is made in chapter 6, verse 13. Uh, this is a, a, a young lady who's... Uh, who likely was a resident of a town called Shunem, okay, which was in uh, 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 the southern part, I believe, of Galilee. So it doesn't actually give us her name. It just calls, we, we, we typically refer to it as the Shunemite or the Shulamite. We're just saying it's the one, the girl who lived or was from that particular town, and we're basically getting that reference from chapter 6. Then interspersed among the narrative between the king and his love is the commentary of the daughters of Jerusalem. They pop up uh, in chapter 1, 2, 3, 5, uh, and chapter 8. They seem to be women employed by Solomon as a part of his household who periodically sing a chorus. So what you'll have is you'll have this this song, and I'll talk about this more next time, but it's like the, the bride, the Shunammite, sings, and then Solomon sings. And then occasionally you have this like chorus of girls, right? Like they step out on stage and they say some things, right? And then they go away and then at times you have Solomon's friends. They show up in chapter 3 and then you have the brothers of the bride that pop in in chapter 8 and maybe even the Lord himself. I mentioned I think last week or in the last couple of weeks that Song of Solomon does not, there's actually no direct reference to God. It's one of the th- reasons why people question whether or not it should be in the, in the canon, although it's not the only book that, that has that particular feature. Uh, but it's very possible that there is a half of a verse that actually speaks of God's, if you will, from God's standpoint, His commentary on the marriage ceremony. So there's this point where we're get to, you get to this point of the center of the book where you're actually talk. It's actually the description of the, of the, the marriage is is happening, right? The 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 
uh, the, the consummation of the marriage is, is, is taking place, and it's as if, if this is the Lord, it's as if the Lord is commenting on his approval of what's taking place. Okay? Now that brings me to this question. Who is speaking? Because one of the other difficulties we have when we read this book is the issue of who in the world is talking and who is being addressed. If I say, hey you, will you help me stack the chairs when class is over? Okay? You may not know who I'm directing that question to because the word you can apply to either a man or a woman in English, right? We also can use it singular. Well, if you're in the South, you say y'all, right? Mm -hmm. So we do have a different form. (laughs) But you is typically can be singular or plural. We say y'all when we want to mean more than one. All y'all. All y'all, yeah. Uh, the, same, the same is true for the word I or me, right? So I can say to my wife, I love you. And my wife could say to me, I love you. But the words alone wouldn't indicate who it is that is speaking and who it is that is receiving those words. Now, in the Song of Songs, sometimes it's pretty obvious. For instance, in, in chapter 1, verse 2, May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. So you actually have the masculine pronoun, right? You have he, you have his. So that gives us, that helps us out. But in other places, it wouldn't be quite as clear, except for the fact that in Hebrew, there is a form of you that is masculine and a form of you that is feminine. So that's a big help, right? So we have the personal pronouns, but now we actually, when it's saying you, 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 we can actually go and find, is that that a a male you or is that a female you? So that's a big help. Uh, How many of you have an ESV? ESV version? Okay, in the ESV, I typically use New American Standard. You'll notice there in chapter 1, verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, and then you have a little title, right? What does it say? All right, but is there a title of the section Besides this, the bride confesses her love. Okay, so you have this little heading, the bride confesses her love, and then you have, before verse 2, you had what? She. Okay, then you go down, all right, in the middle of verse 4, what does it say? Others. Okay. Then, just beyond that, she, before verse 5. Then you have another, after verse 7, you have another uh, section title, Solomon and his bride delight in each other. And then you have, right before verse 8, the word what? He, okay? So in some translations, you'll see the words bride or bridegroom or he and she and the chorus or the daughters of Jerusalem, all those things. You just need to know that these cues are not not a part of the text, okay? So the Hebrew text doesn't have those headings and it doesn't have those personal pronouns, he or she or bride or bridegroom, those, those, those identifications, okay? Uh that's interpretation. Okay, so what it is is that the, the translators of your particular Bible are looking at the Hebrew and determining the masculine and the feminine, and in some cases it's not real clear what it is, and they're making essentially a judgment call, which is fine. Just like we said also a couple of weeks ago, it's okay to have study notes at the bottom of your Bible, right? You just have to know that those are study notes, right? That's not the text itself. Those are not inspired words at the bottom of the page of your study Bible. So as you're going through this, just realize that, and every translation seems to be different here. In fact, the New American Standard doesn't have any 
of those marks. But if you look in the column, if you have a reference Bible, it has little number. You'll see the numbers if you tie the numbers over to the center, center column or the side column reference. It it does basically the same thing as the ESV. It'll say groom, bridegroom, broom, bridegroom, try, trying to help you out. Because when you just read it straightforward, one of the most difficult things I think about this is just pinning down who is talking to who, <laughs> and then and then going through it in that fashion and realizing the the bouncing back and forth that's taking place. Okay. So it doesn't solve all the problems, but at least we know in most cases if it is a man or a woman speaking, and usually the modern translations, NASB, ESV, and even NIV are consistent and reliable to help us with that. As far as the setting of the, of the song, the setting combines both rural and urban scenes. Uh, portions take place in the hill country north of Jerusalem where the Shunammite or Shulamite lived and where Solomon enjoyed prominence as a vine grower and shepherd. Uh, we, we even see that in, back in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Uh, then there's the city section, which includes the wedding and the time afterward at Solomon's uh, home in, in Jerusalem. We see that sort of picking up in chapter 3 and going through chapter 7. As far as the structure of the book, uh, the author apparently arranged his work in, in what we call a chiastic ma- manner that gives the song an overall unity. Um, the center being the, the couple's wedding day. And, and what I mean by that is, uh, this is, this is a uh, proposed outline by a professor that used to be at uh, Denver uh, Seminary. Uh, his last name's Alden. But if, just, if, you can just, if you can see that, basically what we're saying is that, and this is where we get the term, by the way, chiastic. This right here, a key in Greek is that letter. That's what a key looks like in Greek. And basically what they're saying is that there's a, there's a form that takes place that is like a V. It's like it starts here and it moves inward and then you get to this point where it's the center. You get to the center and then it backs out. And the parallelism that we see a lot in Hebrew poetry, it happens here. If you put a one here then that same phrase or something about that, that at the beginning would be repeated here at the end. And then if you had something here, a two, the two would be here, the three, the three would be here, and then maybe the four is in the middle. Okay? So what's interesting, and Alden does this, he actually goes through and shows you how the phrases and the words that are used in the first half of the book are basically repeated in the second half. So that when you get the very first part there, take me away in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, is repeated, come away, in chapter 8, verse 14. Friends are mentioned in chapter 1, verse 4. Friends are mentioned again in chapter 8, verse 13. And, and basically what happens is this, the, the structure, it's all aiming towards what is, what's trying to be portrayed is that there is, there is something climactic, okay, that, that is happening. And in this case, that climactic thing is the wedding processional and the consummation of the marriage. So, you have this, if you will, the first, before that happens in the first part of the book, you have this affirmation of love that these two individuals are sharing back and forth, and it's leading towards the wedding. And then following out of that is another affirmation, you must say a reaffirmation of love, or some that interpret the book as chronological would look at it as if the first part is the time of courtship. So it's the time of the relationship built prior to marriage. 
and then following the wedding is that affirmation of love, but it's an affirmation that follows after, chronologically falls after the, the wedding day. Okay? What's important for us, I think, is that the central, the central section and the high point of the book is the lover's consummation in marriage. It begins and ends with an inclusion. The first and the last word of the book is from the woman. So it's actually the woman that begins talking in chapter 1, and she would make the last comment at the end. And the center of the book is in chapter 4, verse 16, and chapter 5, verse 1. And what you have within the song is a continual back and forth statements of the love, which at the center point finds expression within the actual love-making that takes place between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. So the locked garden that is opened up to the man who comes into his garden being a poetic, that, that, is, that is a poetic expression of physical intimacy, and those verses are the centerpiece of the song. And leading up to and flowing out from that is beyond just the physical expression, the fact that there is this emotional attachment and this exaltation by both the man and the, and the woman for one another. So the Song of Songs is expressing what marital, marital love is all about. It's not, an, it's not an allegory of God's love for Israel, even though John Calvin and many of the Puritans thought that way. It's also not an allegory of Christ's love for the church. And most definitely, it is not some kind of sex, sex manual. Uh, it, it, is, it is not some sort of handbook on how to date or what to use as a pickup line or what to say to your fiancé. Okay? It's just that's not the intent of the book. In fact, and you may be familiar with this, but I mean, this is, this is a lot of the modern approach. In other words, what's happened is we've gone from an allegorical, typological approach to this book that's the pendulum has swung way over here to a literal interpretation, but a very graphic one. So that now pastors are actually, they love this book. They love to do series on this book. In fact, you may have gotten a postcard in your mailbox. We got one years ago when we lived in Woodstock, a church that was doing a series on basically sex. And the very picture, the, the very graphics on the postcard were provocative. But that's what that's what churches are doing, right? I mean, we we've got to excite, we've got to pe- get people to the church house, and so they blast out. I mean, we're just getting something. I assume all of our neighbors got, right? And it's come listen to our pastor talk about sex. Okay, that is where we've gone. Is that we've we've now said, okay, we believe that we're supposed to be interpreting this literally, but now we believe that it's our job to get up and to and to, and to figure out all the symbolism, right? And that's what I meant last week when I just said we're not going to do that. I mean, we're, I'm going to give you the framework. I'm going to give you some summaries. I'm going to pull out some application. I'm hoping that you're going to read this in between Sundays. But I don't feel like it's my job to go and to unpack all the symbolism. There's a reason why it's, some, it's, a reason why it's, it's written in that poetic, figurative way. Uh, John MacArthur, I thought this was helpful. He did a post. I'm not even sure when this was. Uh, didn't have a date on it. But it was, a fi- I think, a four-part post called The Rape of Solomon's Song. And he was responding to the misuse, the, 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 just the crazy stuff that's going on out there, especially from the pulpit where guys are not only talking about these kinds of personal matters in a very lewd way, but even turning Song of Solomon into 
something that isn't illustrative or something that's 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 not just something that's descript that's descriptive, but that's actually prescriptive. To say, this is what you should do, and then actually telling wives and husbands that if Solomon's, if the woman in this story did this certain thing, then as a wife, you must do that. That is the thing that you must do to please God. The reality is we don't have a lot of detail of what takes place (laughs) or should take place in the context of sexual intimacy and marriage. We just don't have have a lot. I mean, I'm saying this is the closest, (laughs) right, just about that we have. But what you find is that even in a Corinthianized culture, like when Paul's talking about all the immorality in Corinth, yeah, he would call it out. It's fornication. It's immorality. It's homosexuality. But go into the details? No. No need to go there, right? So MacArthur says this. He said, It's frankly hard to think of any more appalling misuse of Scripture than turning the Song of Solomon into soft porn. When people can no longer read that portion of Scripture without pornographic imagery entering their minds, the beauty of the book has been corrupted, its description of righteous love perverted, and its role in sanctifying and elevating marriage, the marriage relationship deflected. That preachers would do this in public worship services is unconscionable. Song of Solomon is deliberately veiled in poetic euphemisms that are beautiful by any measure. Some of the imagery is fairly obvious, some highly debatable. In many places, the meaning is indistinct enough to permit a great deal of hermeneutical imagination and wisdom would seem to teach that here, especially here, it is best for the preacher not to be a lot more explicit than the Holy Spirit was. (laughs) That's a great statement, right? Let's face it. Overall, he says, the song is about as far from explicit as the writer can get. Moreover, since the symbolism is obviously about passion, romance, love, desire, and tenderness, its ambiguity serves a deliberate purpose. It speaks in secret terms about that which should be kept secret. The language is clearly designed to communicate intimate affection privately through veiled, confidential, almost clandestine terms. This is a vital point. The style of communication between these two lovers beautifully conceals all but the most essential meaning of their love songs in a way that guards the deeply personal and divinely intended privacy of the marriage bed. Song of Solomon is incredibly beautiful precisely because it is so carefully veiled. It is a perfect description of the wonderful, tender, intimate discovery that God designed to take place between a young man and his bride in a place of secrecy. We are not told in vivid terms what all the metaphors mean because the beauty of marital passion is in the eye of the beholder where it should stay. Yes? You talking about what's actually portrayed in the song itself? It's clearly both. I mean, there's attitude for sure. There's emotion. I mean, there's a lot of... We're going to pull out some of those things. Yes, but there are clearly... There is a... You, you can... There's physical description that's there. And, I, and what he's trying to say is that it's not our job. We get it. When we read it, we know that. But it's not for us to linger there or for us to somehow explain that in detail to an audience. Um, so... Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's what he's saying is that this, that's what I mean by this should elevate, okay? 
it, it, this should, for all of us, I think this should, this should raise us to another plane of understanding about, about marriage and about the way we think about it, about it and the way that we talk about it and describe it and all those things. We, can, we learn something here, right, about the way that God describes these things. Again, this is by inspiration, okay? We can learn, and it should learn from this. So what is it about? When contrast to the two distorted extremes of ascetic abstinence and lustful perversion outside of marriage, Solomon's ancient love song exalts the purity of marital affection and romance. It parallels and enhances other portions of Scripture that portray God's plan for marriage, including the beauty and sanctity of sexual intimacy between the husband and wife. It stands alongside other classic Scripture passages which expand on this theme. Genesis 2, Psalm 45, Proverbs 5, 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, all those. In fact, Hebrews 13, 4 really captures, I think, the heart of the song. In Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. The Song of Songs is best understood as a commentary on the establishment of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. Therefore, monogamy is the assumed ethic behind the entire account. The song could also be considered a corrective against all forms of sexual perversity, God has created sex, and it is not evil when enjoyed within the confines that he has established. The candor with which sexual desire and gratification are discussed within the book doesn't indicate a low standard of morality. The language is not lewd. The language is not crudely sensual. In fact, the love the man and the woman have for one another displays integrity, commitment, and faithfulness. And the book's inclusion in the canon of Scripture frustrates any attempt to denigrate human sexuality while also correcting any attempt to drift into this idea of asceticism. Without the song, the Bible could be seen as incomplete as it would include prohibitions about illicit relations but lack the positive instructions that enable the reader to discover the joy of healthy love. And the fact that Solomon himself may not have paid particular heed to his own advice in no way undermines its message. I mean, if that were the case, folks, we would throw out Proverbs 5, 5 too, right? I mean, Proverbs 5 is a warning against immorality and adultery. But we don't throw that one out because we look at the life of Solomon. So, saying, that's the grief, folks. That's the grief. The grief is that Solomon, again, he gets to... When he, when, remember when we went through that Ecclesiastes in the first part where he goes through this grocery list of all the things? I've done this. I've done that. I've gone here. I know this. That was the, the grief was that he had the wisdom, right? He did understand. He just didn't apply. He understood. He just didn't apply. So this is the Song of Songs. It is a love song that is full of emotion, passion, and at times sexual content, And through this poem, God wants us to be able to see that he has made us intellectual, emotional, relational, and sexual beings, but it isn't all about sex and sexuality. And what this book does is that it it takes these intellectual categories, these passionate categories, and sexual categories, pulls them all together, and shows us what the beauty of marriage is supposed to be like. And it does something else. It points us to something more. Yes, it identifies the beauty of what God has designed in marriage and sexuality, 
But that marriage and that sexuality is meant to be a portal that points to something beyond itself because marriage and sexuality are temporary. They are only a part of this created order. And in the new heavens and in the new earth, there won't be marriage. Right? So as we look at this song, we want to have our affections for marriage elevated and our affections for sexuality and marriage elevated, but we have to keep in mind that those things are not the end goal. That is to say that in the most beautiful and wonderful and enraptured moments in marriage that you, that you have for your spouse, you have to realize that this is nothing compared to what we will experience in glory. It is a gift. It is God's gift, right? We thank Him for it. We need to be good stewards of it. But it's not God, right? It's a gift from God. This is the Song of Songs, the preeminent song, the number one hit, right? The number one hit of, of Solomon, the preeminent song, and it is part of our canon, and we need its message. And I look forward to, over the next few weeks, studying it together with you. So, okay? So if you get an opportunity this week, I encourage you again to take, take some time, try to read through it, and, you know, may raise some questions uh, for you. Again, I think one of the biggest challenges you're going to have is just following it, <laughs> figuring out who's talking to who and, and, and uh, much less a lot of the, the imagery uh, that's, that's behind it. So we'll look at uh, primarily chapter 1. I think we'll be able to just hit parts of chapter 1 um, uh, next time. And again, we won't touch on everything through the book, but I'm, 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 I think it'll be very uh, it'll be edifying for all of us. Okay? All right, folks, thanks for your time.